0: This is the Drummers Resource podcast session 374 and you're listening to the Daniel Glass show only on Drummers Resource. This is it right here. Uh-huh. Then you got to add some of the little tricks. Ah! Uh, ah! Uh, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. All right. It's the Daniel Glass show on Drummers Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming and life philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential
1: voices in the music industry.
0: Hey everybody, Daniel Glass here. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show on the Drummer's Resource. And today I'm going to call this episode Inspiring Stories, and it's going to hopefully be the first of several of these uh, related to what I consider to be rather inspiring figures in this world of music, entertainment, et cetera, et cetera that we are all involved in, embroiled in, and uh, dreaming in, and, and working so hard in. And the reason I, I feel like sharing some inspiring stories with you guys is because so often we get really caught up in the tunnel vision of our own personal struggle, right? Our own personal struggle with practicing or with, you know, Trying to get more work or trying to make a living doing what we do, getting more students, uh, getting more gigs. You know um, that is that is part of the hustle of 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 a freelance drummer, freelance musician. And you know whether you're at the beginning stages of that and you're just trying to get your your feet wet, or you're an amateur and you're just trying to get a, a fun gig together in your you know in your town. Uh, put a cool band together or join a cool band, whether you're a professional and you're trying to take your career to the next level. All of these things, uh, we tend to be very focused on ourselves and what's happening with us. And I want to share a couple of stories of people that um, have really overcome obstacles that I don't think the rest of us ever consider in in our day-to-day life. And I think when you hear these stories, you'll realize that you know what these folks have overcome and not only uh survived but thrived uh in the world of percussion i think it hopefully will add some perspective to to our own individual struggle and inspire us um uh, to to reach you know to to feel that maybe our struggle isn't as bad as we think that it is perhaps Uh, The first of these figures I'd like to introduce today is a a really terrific drummer here in the New York area named Ray Levier. And just to give you a quick introduction, at the age of 12, Ray was terribly disfigured uh, and uh, burned very badly in a fire. He'll give you the details in my conversation with him. But um, he, it's kind of unbelievable, probably many of you in the New York area have met Ray uh, in one, at one time or another. He's been kind of a mainstay on the scene in this area. But um, he is really an inspiring cat. And when you hear his story and how he not only uh, survived from that experience, but it drove him to, to really succeed and achieve, it, it is, uh, you know, I know I keep using this word, but it really is inspirational. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to a conversation, uh, my conversation with Ray Levier. All right, well, I am here with uh, my guest on today's show. Um, We have Ray Levier, which is the French pronunciation as I've just learned. Welcome, Ray.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I wanted to to have you on the show to kind of talk about uh, some of the stuff that you've been through and how you've overcome it. But I think um, maybe we could start by just sort of finding out um, when you got started as a drummer and what inspired you very quickly just to kind of set the stage.
1: Cool, man. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm honored and uh, thank you. Um, you know, I started out, uh, I guess my father, um, he's an accomplished pianist. My sister as well, my Aunt Barbara. is. Uh, the piano has been you know, pretty prevalent in my family. And uh, I just remember coming down the stairs one day and there was this old um, red sparkle Slingerling kit, like a three-piece thing with probably a 20-inch kick and uh, 12 and 16 floor tom. And I saw these drums and I I hit the heads and I was like, wow, this is cool. And don't ask me why, but I must have been four or five years old. I felt compelled to go to the kitchen and I thought if I took a knife and stuck it through these heads, it would sound really cool. So I picked up this knife and I started going er, like in the top of the heads and uh that was my first experience with drums believe it or not so uh i don't quite remember what happened when my father found out that i stuck holes and knife holes in all the drum heads um they just my father you know he was uh doing a lot of gigs at the time and i think the idea was to buy a kit and do rehearsals at the house uh so you know because he had the piano the biggest instrument of all that you know and this is back before the days of you know uh portable keyboard so um you know the idea was to have the rehearsals at the house and so my father got this or found this cheap kit from somewhere i don't know um so that was um the first kit that i ever saw and then it my parents got divorced when i was about nine and the drums just kind of ended up in my grandmother's basement and i was at my dad's house on the weekend and we went over my grandmother's house and uh there's the kit in the basement and out of boredom i was like do you mind if I take these out and start playing on them? And so uh, I pulled them out and just started banging on them. And my grandmother, after like 10 minutes, was like, all right, get this kid some lessons or get these drums out of here. So that was um, the idea was to start taking lessons. And uh, well, no, first, let me back up. The The drums ended up at my house and my mother was like, oh, gee, great. Thanks. Um, so there was a kid down the street, um, Dave, who was taking lessons and I just remember, This is the first time, like I actually saw four way coordination, and it just like it was like a magic trick that I just was blown away by that this kid could keep time on the hi hat, hit the snare, the bass drum, and like he had you know this song he was playing along to, and the whole thing just seemed magical and like a big you know magic trick. And uh, so I went home and learned this one beat, and. Um, you know, the drums didn't mean anything except it felt good to to play them. You know, and I, I didn't have any aspirations of becoming anything with drumming. I just knew that I liked hitting things and and I liked the sound I was getting from the drums. And uh, and then um, before I knew it, I had this accident. Uh, I was twelve, and um, so I basically got caught in this chicken coop that we turned into a clubhouse in the backyard call it a camping accident, whatever, but we'd sleep out in this thing, and we had candles burning, and we all just fell asleep with the candles burning. And uh, I, unfortunately, uh, was the only one that got uh, burned in the fire. Uh, It was my brother and my friend, T.R., and they were both uh, staying up later, so they weren't really sleeping, and um, they had just dozed off, and the fire started, and they both ran out, and the place went up like a tinderbox, because it was this old rotten chicken coop. So um, my brother and my friend, T.R., like ran back in and pulled me out. Uh, but the place just went up so quick, like I said, that, you know, I got burned from my waist up, uh, like very quickly. And I ended up going to uh, Westchester Burn Unit uh, in New York and spent about six months there, just reconstructive surgery and one of the things that made me feel better in the hospital was to think about what I was going to do when I got out. You know, my mother was like, think of healing thoughts. What's something that makes you feel good? And, you know, I was like, well, the drums, you know, because I just started playing the drums. So that was kind of on my radar. And, uh, so my mom and dad were like, yeah, when you get out, you know, we can get you a drum kit and you can play the drums. And, uh, so there was a nurse in there at the time in the room, the hospital room and, uh, unbeknownst to me, she pulled my father aside later on and said, you know, I understand you're trying to make your son feel better with the drums and all that. But, you know, his hands are, uh, you know, he's missing a lot of digits. And I don't know if it's a good idea to get his hopes up like that. He's already having a hard time, that type of thing. And my father just uh, looked at her and said, well, you don't know who my son is and walked away. And, you know, and I th- thought that was, you know, a very powerful statement from my father. And, you know, when I later found that out, you know, I this whole thing of, of getting burned at twelve, you know, thrusts you into a world of looking at things that you don't necessarily want to look at, um, and it's a very real and sobering thing that uh, you look at, you know, in terms of looking at what you have and what you want to do in um, in life and in general, and, and you know, just people looking at you because you have scars on your face or uh, not understanding you, and so you start to hear all these limitations that people have in their own minds about your situation. And I was always a very confident kid. Um, I was very, you know, athletic and physical and I played a lot of baseball and, uh, um, did a lot of BMX racing when I was a kid and went to all these races and did the trophies and the competition and all that. So I was a very competitive outgoing and, you know, type of kid. So, um, I was always just like, uh, there was never a, a, how am I going to do this? It was just, I'm going to do it and I'll figure it out along the way. And that's kind of how I approached everything after my accident, you know, from learning to ride my bicycle again and how do I grab the handlebars and go over a jump without, you know, losing my grip. And so the drumsticks, you know, I just realized, okay, well, let's just start out taping these things to my hand and, you know, I'm I'm just going to start playing and then we'll, kind of figure this out later on and that's basically what we did we you know my after i got out of the hospital my father came through with his promise of a drum set and we went to the store and i got this uh cheap drum set but it was new and shiny and sparkly and i didn't care and it was a pearl by Maxwin, you know um so you know it was like entry level kit but um they were new and they were mine and i was i couldn't be more psyched and I had these cheap cymbals. I think they were called Avanti, and they were like these, you know, plate things. They weren't even hammered, you know. Again, I didn't care. I mean, I had these drums, and uh, so I knew my one beat, you know, and I started on that, and, uh, you know, um, time flies, and next thing you know, you know, I'm like 16, 17, and everybody's talking about what they're going to do when they graduate high school, and I kind of didn't think about things, and I was like, well, what's in my life right now that interests me and the only thing I could come up with was drums. And, uh, so I just, uh, started pursuing thinking about becoming a drummer as, you know, a way of life. And, uh, you know, I come from, uh, you know, musicians in my family. So, uh, I kind of gravitated toward that. And once I realized I wanted to do this, then I really started studying with some teachers that, uh, my father was, uh, Turned me on to this guy Sal Larocca, who he did some gigs with. And Sal is uh, primarily a jazz drummer, and uh, he played with the Junior Mans Trio. And uh, you know, uh, great jazz so he, drummer
0: name by the way, Sal Larocca. That's like yeah. that's too
1: cool. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, and you know, so my father got me these lessons, and um, so he came over, and this guy was just very intimidating looking at him. He looked like Charles Bronson, and he had he had this really nice car, and he had this like leather jacket, and he nothing seemed to impress him and he was just yeah okay yeah you know and he was like from the Bronx and uh and so he's like all right we're gonna we're gonna work on some rudiments we're gonna get your hands together but sorry uh, to
0: interrupt but tell me where where you grew up I know you live in Nyack now which is uh north of New York City by about an hour or so but where is this where you grew up in the same area
1: uh this is Hillsdale New Jersey Bergen County New Jersey and it's not too far from here it's like 20 minutes um But that's kind of where all this happened. And I moved around a lot as a kid, Um, but that's where I took lessons with him in Westwood, New Jersey uh, for, gosh, about eight, nine years, you know, studying with him on and off. So you were telling
0: us about his his approach uh, to how you jumped into the lessons.
1: Yeah, his approach was uh, rudiments, you know, and getting your hands together and lots of warm up exercises and. You know, singles, doubles, buzz rolls, and going through all the double stroke rolls and the buzz rolls and just warming up a lot, doing threes, fours, fives, six, sevens with each hand individual. And, um, you know, he had this really methodic way of um, getting things together for your hands. So I took one or two lessons from him. And um, honestly, I was turned off by the whole rudiment thing. And I was a kid in high school that would just had rock and roll in his brain. And, you know, jazz wasn't on my radar yet. And uh, it just all seemed too heady, And I just wanted to rock out, basically. So
0: a familiar tale, I think, <laughs> uh, I'm sure, to any. And my story, too. You know, I, I, uh, I, I was initially not interested in learning jazz, even though I was playing at school band and that kind of stuff. Right. And it took a little while.
1: Yeah. I, I, entered jazz through the back door. Um, and I'll get to that later, but you know, uh, so I found a teacher that was, uh, more about just teaching me rock grooves, you know? So he got me into the Carmine Appice uh, realistic rock book and I couldn't read so well, but that book is, you know, everything's lined up where if you understand eighth notes on the hi-hat, you could just look at the snare and the kick drum and figure out where things were. So I kind of taught myself to read through that book. Um, and I got, you know, I was playing in a heavy metal band at the time with these kids. It was kind of a total garage band thing. And, um, and then the band fell apart and I think I just turned 19 or 20 and I was really feeling, uh, a little disheartened by the whole band thing. And I realized that I'm just a drummer that doesn't know anything. Um, and I wanted, I kind of had this talk to myself and I was like, you know what, if you're going to do this, you really should be a musician. And, not just a drummer that just knows a groove or two. Um, and I started getting turned on to music. Um, this guy I was studying with after Sal, his name is Keith Crane, and um, he really turned my head around and, and helped me uh, with a lot of things that um, I didn't really want to look at because I was just, I, I didn't have the, the, uh, the forethought to think about my hands. I was still using, um, I found this glove in a parking lot and I went from Taping a stick to my hand, to taping the stick to the glove, and sticking my left hand. The right hand, I, I have more digits. I can always hold the stick with the right hand. It's a little limited. Um, I've worked through it, technique-wise. Uh, but the left hand, I needed help. So I had this glove, and I was, you know, doing a lot of gigs with this band, and uh, and then I just point
0: out that like you yeah. you couldn't grip the sticks because your your thumbs. Were gone, yeah. Basically,
1: basically. I explain my a left more hand. That. I'm sorry to talk over you. My left hand turned into a mitten, basically, because uh, I have half of my fingers, but everything kind of just, just like, kind of grew in to to heal itself. You know, like skin just has a way of just like closing up as quickly as it can. So everything was kind of just stuck in this mitten, and um, so I couldn't grip a stick. I, you know, um, so one of the things that Keith really helped me with was he's he sat me down one day and he's like look man we've been you've been studying with me for a while and it seems like you're really into this and you're thinking about pursuing this as a career he's like i really you know it's up to you but i really think you should think about getting surgery done on your left hand so you can get some way of gripping a stick and when he first said it i was scared i was like no more hospitals you know because i had been like prodded and poked and pricked and i had enough you know and um so I thought about it for a long time, and eventually I ended up going to uh, Shriners up in Boston, and um, they, you know, I went up there with my mom at the time, and doctor said, "What can I do for you?" And I said, "Well, I'm a drummer, and I need to be able to hold a drumstick with this hand." And the, the I just remember the doctor was like, "Wow, we don't get requests like that every day." It's like, "You want a thumb? You got it." So. Uh, I had the surgery done and they pulled my thumb out of my palm because like I said, it was kind of grown in there. Um, so now I had this little, this thing that I can, you know, put the stick in there. So I came home and when it healed to the point of being able to hold it, I put the stick in there. And as you know, sticks are glossy and slippery and I put it in there and I I couldn't grab it. You know, I, I, I can hold it, but I couldn't hit something without it flying out of my hand. And, um, I've, I, I guess I've been developed this inventive mind you know from my accident so i just saw the rubber band sitting on the counter and i saw the drumstick and i was like wait a minute let's put the rubber band around the front of it wrap it around the back of my hand and then put it back on the butt end of the stick and i lo and behold i could get a buzz and it goes right back into my hand and i regrip it and so that was what i did i had this rubber band technique that i still use today Um, you know, if it's a hard hitting situation, like I put the rubber band in there as insurance, but I kept tweaking this thing. Um, and basically what I found was this wig glue that, uh, you know, people that wear wigs, they have this glue and they attach this glue to the wig. And it's like really super sticky stuff, but not to the point where it's like crazy glue where you're never going to get it off. So I found this wig glue and I would just coat the stick And you put it in there and like when it's fresh glue and you get it in there, like it's not going anywhere, you know? Um, So I developed this technique around the rubber band and the glue, uh, you know, the glue just kept it from barrel rolling inside, you know, and it kept it in one firm spot. Um, And in terms of like, you know, choking up on the stick or where you hold it, like, I mean, I'm sure most drummers would tell you like once they find the sweet spot with the left hand and I play traditional. So once you find that spot, There's a fulcrum that's happening where it's like it's too heavy, I'm not getting enough bounce, or it's too light and I'm getting too much bounce and not enough beef on my backbeat. So you find that spot and, you know, you work with it, you know, and my stick kind of moves depending if I'm playing rock, I'll bring the stick out more to get, you know, if I'm not doing a lot of chop stuff, I'll bring the stick out more to get more of a backbeat. And if I'm doing a jazz gig, I don't need a rubber band, It's a little bit of glue and, uh, you know, because I'm picking up brushes putting down the sticks and then coming back to it. And that's a whole nother thing I had to work out. Um, Let me just
0: ask you about the the traditional grip thing. Were you already playing traditional? I mean, it seems, you know, a lot of people really struggle with traditional. It seems like um, that would maybe not be the the, the go-to default thing, or did traditional just work better with your reconstructed thumb?
1: um, Honestly, when I went to Sal, he was a traditional guy. And uh, just the way the stick is held – in my hand it felt better to do traditional because i can do i don't have a stick here but i can do uh match grip but just the way it hits my pinky when it comes down didn't feel right and um i felt with the traditional like i can get a nice fulcrum buzz off the head um so it just kind of landed that way and like i said with sal like he was all about traditional and uh so I, that's just kind of how that happened. Uh, but it feels a little better to do traditional than match grip.
0: Yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's basically the beginnings of how I learned to hold the stick. Um, you know, and then I, like I said, I studied with Sal for a long time and we went through tons of books and lots of snare drum technique books. Um, I can't remember, you probably know these books a lot better than I do, but It was a lot of etude books that we went through, the the N.A.R.D. solo book, the and swinging solos. And like he was turning me on to all these things that were very foreign to me. And, you know, and then he started turning me on to jazz. And he's like, here, play along to this Art Blakey record. And never heard of Art Blakey in my life. Never heard of Max Roach, any of these guys, you know, and Elvin. And then one day he's like, uh, I'm like, who's your favorite drummer? And he's like, without dropping a beat, he's like Tony Williams and I was, Tony who? And then <laughs> once you discover Tony, it's it's all over, you know, there's no going back. And like, I discovered Tony and then I, I you know, came through the back door through like, you know, through studying with Sal, um, you know, and, and found out about these guys through Sal as a rocker. And um, But even prior to Sal, I, I remember being in high school and I went over to this kid's house and He's like, Oh, you're a drummer? Yeah, I'm a drummer too. He's like, Who do you listen to? I'm like, Well, I listen to Metallica and Megadeth and Anthrax and, and he's like, Oh, okay. And he was like down on the whole thing and he's like, You ever check out some jazz fusion? And I had no idea what jazz fusion was, but I heard the word fusion and I'm like, that's gotta be cool, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> right. whatever fusion is, I wanna check it out. So I went to a music store and I was like, Do you have any jazz fusion? And the guy's like, oh, yes, right this way. And uh, he turned me on to uh, Weather Report Black Market. And um, oh, man, I think it was a Schofield record, a Chick career record. Uh, and then he started pulling out, like I went back and he started pulling out like uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra and Birds of Fire. And I heard Billy Cobham and uh, it was another it's all over thing. It was just like I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And you know, I just so it was just like on a daily basis, I was getting my mind blown and it was just I was eating it up and I couldn't get enough. And it was just like, give me more, give me more, you know. And Sal had me going. I literally had a stack of books that I couldn't even carry, you know, from etude books to, you know, rock books to, uh, you know, all these groove books. And uh, I really got into the Gary Chaffee methods. So we went through all his books um, Garrett Baldi's book was just a game changer for me. Sure. Um, you know, it just, I just started finding all these things and, you know, as you know, it's incestual and you just, the more, you know, I would go to tower records and I'd be like, I have no idea what this record is, but Steve Gadd's on there. It's gotta be great. <laughs> you know, and I would go home. And-
0: yeah. I mean, I, I think just to comment on what you're saying that, uh, for a lot of us, uh, the way the bridge to get to jazz was definitely through jazz fusion and i kind of took a similar path I, I got really into prog rock and then from prog rock i was like well this is cool but there's not enough um, you know improvisation happening it was still all really right. orchestrated so oh wait uh-huh. you got this jazz fusion stuff and now they're improvising but it still sounds like rock or prog rock yeah. or whatever and then from there i you know worked my way to to more you know kind of traditional straight ahead type stuff and and and, yeah. back, and backwards from there so um, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, my, I guess um, just, you know, you mentioned something before that was really powerful. You said that in your mind, you know, it wasn't about the disability stopping you. It was more just your way of thinking from day one was, you know, okay, what do I need to do to just do what I want to do? Right. Maybe you could kind of talk about that a little bit more because I think, you know, I think too many people um, – get hung up on the challenges that they face rather than, you know, figuring out the solutions on how they're going to overcome them.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, being young helps, but that doesn't mean you can't be in your fifties or sixties and have something happen to you and reinvent yourself. It's just a little harder because I think you're stuck in your ways and we pattern ourselves as humans and it's just what we do. And like even, you know, (coughs) kids are flexible and they can bend this way and that way. That's because they haven't walked all these thousands of miles in their life and you don't get patterned and like, you don't have to undo anything yet. So it might be a little easier in that aspect, but I just, I knew from my heart of hearts that I wanted to do this and nobody was going to tell me I couldn't do it because I was so, you know, just like, I'm going to do this, you know? And there was no doubt in my mind. um, I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew that I was going to do it. You know, it's like, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm making great time. It's like, that's kind of my mentality of how I went about this. It was just like, we're going to do it. And it was more about proving to myself in a healing way that I'm going to do this. And um, I remember being in the hospital and watching some kids working on some like arts and crafts stuff with their hands. And I had this moment where I broke down and cried. And I was like, I can't do that with my hands, mom. And she's like, honey, she's like, don't worry, you'll figure things out. And you know, my mom is just this amazing person that And my father, I mean, I'm really lucky to have these parents uh, that have just embraced anything I wanted to do after the accident. And uh, they never instilled fear or doubt or worry in me. They were always like, you want to do this, you can do it. And my mentality was, you know, when you have this uh, life-threatening thing happen to you where it's like, you know, I got burned and I wasn't supposed to live overnight. And, I, you know, it was just touch and go. And I didn't know that as a kid. Uh, I knew that something really terrible happened to me, but I wasn't thinking like, okay, how bad is this? Uh, How long is it going to take? It was just day to day. Um, But I always had this um, hope of the near future of what's going to make me feel good and what's going to make me uh, heal as a person. Um, And like I said, you know, I was just a very confident kid and I just... I just always did what I wanted to do, you know? And, like, it got me in trouble a lot. Like, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to go to school today. I'm just going to go hang out and go down by the river and throw rocks, <laughs> you know? And, like, I knew there was consequences, but I'm like, I don't care. Right now I'm having fun. And that was kind of how I lived my life up until the accident. And then after that, like, drumming gave me this this uh, ability to, uh, to really focus me and I really feel like the drumming was the one thing missing in my life that when I found that it really helped me to be super disciplined. And I found that I was a very disciplined kid. Uh, It's just that I had to find something that really turned me on. And it was like all or nothing. If I wasn't interested in it, it was just like, eh. And my father tried with piano lessons and to sit behind a piano inside, you know, when it was beautiful out and I could ride my bike outside and hang with my friends, it just didn't seem appealing at all. Um, at that time until later on, you know, like once you find something, it's just, as you know, I mean, you're, you're a super accomplished musician yourself in so many ways. And you've obviously put in many, many thousands of hours and it's just, it's never enough. You know, it's just, you love it so much. It's just, you know, I sit down and I practice four or five, six hours a day whenever I can. It's just, it's like going to the gym, you know, people get addicted to going to the gym and, you know, becoming a gym rat. And I was like a drum rat, you know, you just, you turn into that. And uh, it's just, it's just what happens. And it's, you know, um, studying with Sal really gave me a lot of discipline and he taught me to love practicing. And there was something about this guy that, you know, that I wanted to impress upon him. And, um, you know, he kind of took on this father role that I wanted to impress. And, um, so if he said jump, I was like, okay, how high, you know? And it was that type of relationship where he's like, all right, go buy this book. And I'd literally go from the lesson and go to Sam Ash and like go in their department and be like, do you have this book? And if not, they put it on back order. And like, so like behind me, I have a whole library of every book. And, you know, I look at these books and like I look at the dates in there I'm like wow 1990 you know and uh I'll never sell these books you know I'll even if I don't go through them again it's just the history of looking at all these books I've accumulated and knowing where I, I was at that time and Yeah um, I still
0: have my original copy of Ted Reed's Syncopation which I got in 1979 and wow uh, and when I took my first drum set lessons I'd taken more classical stuff before that but but drum set lessons and I have written in there my, you know, my uh, 13-year-old writing of my name and my phone number or something like that, you know, and it's like the same thing. It's like looking back on it going, man, it's been a journey, you know, how how the hell did I get here from there or whatever? Yeah, yeah it cool. goes so
1: fast, doesn't
0: it? It does, it does. Well, um, I have sort of a bizarre question for you. I mean, Please. I don't know if you can even answer it, but, you know, it seemed like the, the accident – perhaps and the the kind of the immediacy of the intensity of your situation maybe helped to focus you in terms of your passion for drums you know do you think that if you hadn't had the accident you would be this passionate for drums today
1: i really don't know and part of me thinks maybe i wouldn't have you know because trying to to do something with the way my hands were there was such a challenge to that and i was always a kid that like liked a challenge you know and like, I always went after the, seems like the insurmountable, the impossible, the like, you know, kind of uh, Mount Everest head trip of like, getting to the top of this mountain. And um, it kind of like, I, I just put out a record called Lost and Found. And the whole concept behind that is that whenever you find yourself, it's always because of some type of loss, you know. And for me, I mean, I think it's kind of universal, but, universal, but totally for me, like, any growth that I've had in my life is always been after an ass kicking. You know, it's like the, the lost aspect of like, you know, for instance, in chess, like there's a saying, like you never learn when you win at chess, it's only when you lose. And like, I got really into chess at one point and uh, you know, so it, it turned, you know, it turned it around as to what it means to lose and uh, losing is a good thing sometimes because you know, um, and I always say like my accident kind of was a blessing in disguise, um, or maybe that's just my positive attitude turning it around, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that you can take lemons and make lemonade instead of just bitching about how bitter they are when you try to eat them, you know, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs>
0: great. great. I love the whole lost and found concept. That's great. Yeah.
1: Thanks man. And, and going back to when I was 12, it's like I was forced to see adults acting like children, about the way I looked and I was forced to see adults being super negative about my situation. And I was like, wait a minute, like that's not my philosophy. Like you're trying to put that in my head. And I I saw how people like just, um, I'm losing the word, but, um, they just see you and they assume that, you know, you can't do this because your hands are that way. And like, it's not the case, you know, like, um, So going back to lost and found, it's like, that's kind of how I've always, it's been a theme in my life of, uh, you know, I lost some fingers, but like I found myself through drumming, you know, and um, it it forces you to look at the positive, um, you know, because there's a lot of negative that you can go down. And uh, maybe I got that from my parents um, in terms of being, seeing the positive. But I kind of had this knowing, I don't know where it came from, but as a 12 year old, I realized like, I'm going to sink or swim here and like, I'm, I'm not sinking. That's not even an option for me. So I got to be positive. I got to make it okay for people. I got to just like do things, you know, and not wait for things to be done. Um, I got to tell people the way it is because a lot of people see me and they just try to tell me the way it is in terms of what they're seeing. And I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's not where I'm coming from. And um, you know, maybe drumming was uh, part of that, I'll show you like that I can do something with these hands and not only do something, but Excel way beyond what anybody ever thought about, you know? So in terms of drumming, like I gravitated toward drummers that had wicked facility and chops and buddy was, you know, the first time I heard buddy, that was just like, how would, how does anybody do that? Play that fast, you know, play a single stroke roll that fast and then bring it all the way down to triple P And then to the rim, you know, and then all the way back up to triple F and like, seems like he's got plenty of headroom. And like, I remember seeing that video the first time. I don't know which one it is. There's tons of great buddy videos, but I saw that and I was like, you know what? I'm holding these friggin' sticks. There's no reason I can't do this either. And like, that's a pretty ballsy statement to be like, I can do what buddy does. But like in my mind, it was like, maybe I can't do what he does, but I can strive for that. And I can, you know, aim to the stars. And if I hit the top of the mountain, that's pretty damn good, too. Exactly. That's you know? that's, a
0: gr- that's another really great point, which is sort of that if you don't kind of give it your best effort or at least go for it, you know, how are you ever going to know what, what you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's, um, you know, I, I want to make sure that, that people are, are hip to what you're doing now because you do a lot of really interesting things in the music world, the drum world, the recording world. Um, you mentioned your new album, which is really great. Um, I, was, I was telling you earlier. I checked out a bunch of the tracks. It's it's sort of like David Bowie and Nine Inch Nails meets you know. I don't know. I, I don't know how you describe yeah. it, but you're singing on it. Um, the the drum the drumming is fantastic on it. It's really good. Uh, rock and roll, pop rock. Thanks, I don't man. know what you <laughs> how would you describe it.
1: Yeah, I can. It's kind of Bowie meets Nine Inch Nails and a uh, little bit of. Pink Floyd. There's some classic rock. It's like 80s and 90s. I mean, I I was more influenced by 80s music than I thought. And in high school, I kind of hated the 80s music and the poppiness of it and all that. And then you get older and you start listening to bands like The Cure. And I'm like, Jesus, this guy's writing his ass off. Like, these are really good songs. You know, but at the time in high school, I was really into metal and it was just like, ah, you know, these guys are jerks, you know, and You know, now I'm like this guy that has come full circle through the jazz world and fusion and funk and just tried you know, have become this um, freelance musician that, you know, just kind of embraced all styles of music. So I I think that's just kind of an amalgamation of all the different styles and growing up of, uh, and I'm a huge Bowie fan and Nine Inch Nails. And I just, I love all kinds of music, you know, um. There's so many aspects of uh, so many different styles that turn me on. But the record just kind of came out that way. And, um, you know, know, these are songs that I just kind of had in my hard drive that were kind of unfinished. And um, I had a breakup with my girlfriend at the time, and we're back together, so that's great. But at the time, I was, you know, kind of sad and lonely, and it just became therapy for me to, like, finish these songs. And a lot of the songs are about her and um, there's a lot of angst in the record, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's about just getting through it and, you know, kind of white knuckling it. And uh, again, that's kind of a theme in my life of just like, you know, when things are tough, you just got to white knuckle it and just keep moving forward and hope for better days. So a lot of the songs are about that. And uh, Which I've learned
0: generally show up <laughs> you know but, yeah i mean yeah you know you 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 learn to believe that uh that you that you will get through these things and
1: uh, yeah and that becomes a meditation or a mantra that you know and you, you become what you think and i realized that as a really uh as a really on early on as a kid um that thoughts are very powerful and uh there's a song on the record called thoughts and it's basically like your thoughts never leave you alone and um you know, it's about her, and I can't get to sleep because I'm thinking about her, but it's also about just like what you allow into your brain um, to control your life and to guide you. And uh, so a lot of these songs have double double meanings, and um, I did them basically all in Ableton Live. Um, I like working in Ableton because, uh, you know, there's these clips where you can kind of loop things immediately, and like, you know, you come up with a riff, and it gets spit back at you immediately, and it's like, wow, I like that. And then you start developing off of that and um so that's kind of how the whole uh, each one of these songs just kind of started with an idea like a lick that i liked um and um so i i was planning on redoing all these instruments that i had done uh through midi in ableton and uh and then i eventually dumped all these tracks into pro tools to get the audio part you know much more stronger uh, cuz pro tools is just more of an audio instrument um, and so as i started putting compression on keyboards and stuff that i thought i'd have to replace uh i would bring keyboard players in and they're like i wouldn't touch this like this is great man i can't do anything better than this like this is you you know this is your signature like this should be your record so um really i'm the only person on there except for some guests i have on there um guitar parts are very hard to to mimic through computer so I, i had uh Anytime you hear guitar on there, it's real guitar. But those are my parts that I kind of told uh, the other musicians to play. But, you know, it was also kind of a, a proving to myself once again that I can do this, you know, as as a songwriter and a musician, not just a drummer. And so uh, I'm proud of the record because it kind of, you know, I proved myself this point that I can create, you know, a composition. And, you know, I mean, it's not like... You know, it's not the most in-depth compositional music, but uh, the parts are, you know, they're mine and I think they're creative and um, all the background vocals and like the choirs, I did that all myself. I just kept going and doubling, tripling, quadrupling parts until um, I had choirs and, you know, uh, so I was learning a lot along the process and um, I tracked the drums up at the clubhouse in Rhinebeck. I think you were there not too long ago. yeah. And
0: speaking of of that studio, uh, The Clubhouse, where um, I had a chance to record, and you've done a lot of recording there, Um, just to kind of conclude, tell us about the work that you do uh, in, in, you know, uh, the world of composition and uh, film and TV kind of composition. It's really, really interesting stuff, and I think a lot of people would be interested to hear about how it's put together, because we all see it all the time. Right. Right. so, yeah, talk yeah. a little bit about that.
1: Um, well, my good friend, Rich Tizzoli, uh, that you met not too long ago, um, we kind of, uh, well, I he was a friend of a friend, and, like, I just got into Pro Tools, and I was like, I need some help with this. This is ridiculous. And so my friend Pete was like, oh, call Rich. He doesn't really teach, but he might, you know. So he came over, and I took some lessons, and we just, you know, immediately hit it off. And, um, you know, I just kept kept on with uh, acquiring gear in my studio and I, you know, I kept at it learning and learning. And, um, and then, you know, a few years went by and we just started working together. Um, He had already been established doing a lot of uh, songs for television. Um, And then, you know, he was just pulled me in the loop and um, we started tracking a lot in my studio. Um, And it's, you know, a whole nother world, where you're creating music for television, where it's very formulaic and it has to be a certain way to grab people's attention, and you know the drum fills and the grooves and everything have to be uh, simplified to um, convey to television. And like I remember the first couple of times, you know, I play a drum fill like da da boom da 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 not boom, you know, I'd be like no no no, how about da 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 you know, and it's like. He's like, that's what's going to jump out in a TV screen, not some Phil that sounds like a wheelchair falling down steps, you know. (laughs) So I learned really quickly what to play, what to not play. And uh, it's all about working very fast. And like Richie works very fast. um, And so like we'll knock out like three tracks, you know, within two hours. We'll have three tracks and then we'll have subtracks of just drum and bass, uh, you know, the full mix. Uh, this one is without guitar. So each track that you send to the TV people, um, they have multiple mixes of each one because, again, it's formulaic and you have to understand that you're going to send this to an editor. He's going to sit there with a scrubber tool and he's got tons of hours to find music for and he's moving at lightning speed. So you got to make it easy for him to find you know, breaks and beginnings and ends. So a lot of it's you know, just A B A B. The first A B simpler, and the next A B might be a little more in depth or open up more on the symbols, or give them a little bit more drum fills or something for excitement. And it, you know, they got to have the stinger at the end to go into commercial. And that's another track you send them just ten seconds that goes right into a stinger because that might be all they want. And they don't feel like scrubbing through your whole song. And a lot of these songs are just a minute, minute and twenty, and you know. So it's just it's a lot of fun to work fast and kind of treat it like, you know, like the confidence of just coming off a world tour playing this music. And it's like you're just again, that's what jazz has taught me is, you know, we're playing hard rock for this television show, but I'm improvising and it's like through compose, like right on the spot. So like all these things, you know, help you down the road that you're not you don't even you're not even aware that your improvisational skills might be revolving around. A very heavy drum beat that you're just learning but the jazz part of you is like okay we're improvising this and play it loud and proud and strong that type of thing just for
0: clarification because um you know anybody out there who's watched a reality show say you know anything from duck dynasty to real housewives to cupcake wars to uh, any stars. of these yeah any of these kinds of yeah. shows pawn stars uh, every time you go in, you know, come out of a commercial break, you hear that little snippet of music that gets yep. you into the scene, and then the next scene starts. Or sometimes, even within a single scene, you hear another little snippet of music, and it's these these little snippets. Um, you know, in particular, I always wondered how those were created, and that's kind of the process that you're talking about, I assume, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, like these editors, they'll, they'll put together the whole thing, and like you don't hear this till it's on your radar and then you watch TV and that's all you hear, you know? And like, so like, yeah. And they're quick. Like the guy will be like, we went to Joe's garage today to see if he could find us a motor. And there's bomb, bobo down, bom, you know, there's music going. He opens the door to the shop. As soon as he closes his door, there's another thing going. And then they go into negotiation about the price. And there's this negotiation music. And then he leaves the shop and here, Brown, you know, there's a little button and they, Go to the next scene, and that's like it's kind of
0: like you know, sort of the you know, the musical equivalent for the ADD age that we live in, right? Everything's just cutting so fast, absolutely, and constantly. Sort of, what I what I find so interesting about it is that it it's setting it sets a mood, but it takes like literally five seconds, you know, to to set that mood. That's the idea is to move you through the show as the viewer slash listener, and you create this little mood. Then you know. A couple shots that are you create another little mood and it yep. it really you know the other thing I don't want to diminish is that you say it's very formulaic but you know it, 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 there it is isn't. an art form to it right I mean yeah. it 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 it's um I I did one of these sessions and uh it it was just a, a really interesting experience in terms of like you said you you have to be incredibly creative um, even though what you're producing something that sounds like something people have heard a lot before right would you say yeah
1: yeah yeah and um a lot of times like when Richie and I bring people in like a keyboardist or a saxophonist or a violinist or whatever because sometimes there's like a lot of these Alaska shows there's frontier shows there's like violin or you know we do a lot of bluegrass stuff and it's just it's all over the map you know so we pull people in and like we're moving, you know, at 80 miles per hour and the violinist is like, I think I can do a better take. And we're like, no, it's it's fine. Trust me. It's not like <laughs> recording right. a record. You know, it's functional. It works. It sounds good. Let's move on. You know, that type of thing.
0: Right. Really cool. Well, Ray LeVier, it's been fantastic having you uh, here in conversation today. And um, it's just been a pleasure, man. And I look forward to, Oh man. yeah, we're not too far apart. So hopefully we'll do some hanging in person pretty soon.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for including me on your show. It's an honor, and uh, I look forward to meeting you one of these days.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we'll definitely in the in the show notes we'll we'll include some links to uh, uh, your your website and your new album. and And I would love it if you could. Take some pictures of the rubber band thing and the glue Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, it would be really, really interesting. I think for people to to see how you negotiate all that, and certainly we'll put some links to your performances, which are great, man. Smoking. Thank you. I mean, you're you're a terrific drummer, and uh, so I I appreciate you, and I wish you all the all the best.
1: Thank you so much, Daniel.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with ray i think you'll agree it's pretty amazing and remember in the show notes we're going to have a whole bunch of cool stuff you could see some of the things that he talked about how he used uh glue for wigs and rubber bands and other things to hold the stick in his hands um i'll have some links to his website his new record and um you know you can get to know him a little bit better because he really is an inspirational character and uh, I I really uh, enjoy talking with him. Uh, That's it for this episode of The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. Remember, you can reach out, connect, let me know what you think about these episodes. I really appreciate the feedback that I do get. Remember to follow me on Facebook at Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator. On Instagram, Daniel Glass Drums. Twitter. You name it, I'm out there. Send me an email from danielglass.com, my website, and we are uh, taking registrations for the 2018 Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive, so go check that out at the uh, clinic's intensives page at danielglass.com. Thanks so much, and I will see you next time on The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource.